This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story. For the fourth time in two years, Australia's east coast is flooding. Flood emergency in and around Sydney is intensifying. An east coast low is dumping heavy rain, huge swells and high winds across a 500-kilometre stretch of the coast. The SES conducted more than 100 rescues from swollen rivers and creeks. One person has died. Following hundreds of harrowing emergency rescues, one drowning death and more than 80,000 people evacuated or warned to evacuate from their homes across Sydney... The heavy rain and flood warnings were moving north to the Central Coast, Hunter and Mid-North Coast by Wednesday. Today we speak to a Sydney resident whose house has flooded three times in the past 18 months. And we examine what's behind these repeating floods and what can be done to better prepare for them as the climate crisis worsens. The phrase that, that we used to hear a lot from politicians is, and even climate scientists was, you can't link any single event to to climate change. Um, But we realised quite a long time ago that we were asking the wrong question if we were saying, was this flood stroke, bushfire stroke, heat wave um, uh, caused by climate change? Um, The question is, did climate change make this worse? Um, and, And I think increasingly politicians from the Prime Minister down are willing to accept that yes, maybe they are. It's Thursday the 7th of July. Gosh, is that that your backyard? Where are you? I'm at McGrath's Hill, and this is usually um, a road out the front of my place. Wow. I mean, it looks like a river. This is Peter Levy. She lives in a village called McGrath's Hill, about 50 kilometres northwest of Sydney's central business district. This week, as her home and neighbourhood flooded, I spoke to her over a video call to find out how she's doing. I mean, how are you feeling, Peter? How do you feel right now? Last night, I was a complete wreck. My heart was racing all night. Like, and I'm, I end up waking up and Googling how to bring my heartbeat down a bit more regular because you just don't know. You don't know if it's going to get to 15 metres. Peter, can you tell us what it normally looks like, what you normally see? This is normally paddocks and the street is directly just in, in front of the house and it's, it's just paddocks across as far as you can see normally, but now it's water as far as you can see. I'm at McGrath's Hill, just out of Windsor. So you come across the flats from Windsor towards back towards the city and we're the first, the first village there. Can you paint a picture of what McGrath's Hill is usually like? We're mostly families here and uh, working tradies by the looks of the last census. <laughs> we just go to work and pay our mortgages for this water frontage. And is this the first time you've experienced a flood? No, this is the third. The first one was last year in March. Uh, March this year and now this one and I've lived here for over 20 years. This house has actually never had water in it since it was built in the 80s. And it's happened three times in 18 months now? Yes. Is this flood different from the last two? Last year it came up and it got to like right to the front door 
and then now this year in March, uh, it came up into the house. Last year, I was just a, a wreck because it mm. never happened before to me. I was having nightmares that I was stepping out of my bed into flood water. Oh, no. It was awful. I kept waking up thinking, oh, there's water in the top level. But that's the bad bit. Then in March, I felt like I was a little bit more seasoned to it. So we, we moved stuff and it came in the house a bit and this time it's come in a bit more. So what, where is it in the house? It's a two-storey house, so it is down, it's downstairs and, yeah, it's, it's come in uh, about the height of a milk crate. So do you have food? Are you safe there now? Yeah, no, we're, we're pretty good that way. We've um, uh, got, got a generator and we can keep all our food this time. The first time we didn't have anything. We did not know what was going to happen and we lost our food. Uh, we had no generator. It kind of feels like we're getting experience. Like we kind yeah. of know what we're doing now. You know, we have the cat cages all lined up and, you know, we've sort of plan to get going with the animals I've got a flood box now which has their food in it and you know torches and batteries and all sorts of little knickknacks that I and the kettle for the you know for boiling on the LPG are you scared uh you well I was this time because they keep saying oh it's going to peak it's going to peak now I'd like to clarify is that peak of the hour or peak of the day or peak of the week or peak of the flood we don't know because they say it's peaked and then the next day there's oh, there's another peak. Like, where does this peak stop? Like, I don't even know now. Also, just about every creek and waterway in the whole Sydney basin runs into South Creek, which comes to Windsor. Mm. So almost there's, if, it, if, the, if your local creek doesn't run into the Parramatta River, it runs into South Creek. So Ropes Creek, Eastern Creek, um, Badgeries Creek, they all run into South Creek. South Creek goes all the way over to that airport, so I hope they're not going to dump their drainage into South Creek because we're going to cop that as well. Right. A lot of this here is like it's quite brown. You can see it's like the orangey-browny sort of colour. Yeah. It wasn't that colour last time. Now we've got a lot of development just down here, the hills of Carmel, uh, Oakville, Vineyard, Riverston. Now all these areas uh, all drains into the Kalani chain of ponds. The Kalani chain of ponds runs runs over here, and we're getting all that runoff as well. Sydney Basin, Windsor is the plug hole. Mm. It all comes here, so I, I would put money on it that all this orange water is coming from development. So they're still building new houses in this floodplain. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Do you think they should be? I think they need to do something different uh, rather than dump it on the Hawkesbury. Mm. You know, they just dump it straight into the nearest waterway and it comes mm. here. They're not like holding. Now, all that land, especially the Hills Carmel, was farmland and they, you know, farmers keep the water for dam storage, uh, you know, to water the crops and everything. Now it's just runoff. Mm. So have you had to make any adjustments to your house in the last 18 months to future-proof it from these kinds of floods? Well, there's nothing that we can actually do. Like the house was built in the 80s. Now the one in 100 flood level, floor level, is at my curtain rods. Wow. On the two-storey house, not downstairs. Oh, right, uh, the upstairs. Yes. So if you were building today, that's where your ground would have to be? My living level. Right. So there's not much you can do about that, is there? Uh, not if council won't give us permission to knock down and rebuild at that level. Right. Have you asked them? 
I had done uh, quite a few years ago and it was just a flat no. And have you received any assistance or government support or anything like that for the first two floods? Last year, no. And we were tr- it looked like this. Mm. And we were denied the lousy $1,000 last year. Why? Because we weren't affected enough. I've never seen anything like that view out your window right now. No one could believe it, but I wasn't affected enough. And so we, we were denied the $1,000. We had no power for five days and um, we lost all our food. Like I said, we didn't have a generator then. Mm. Um, now we do. So I've learned a little bit. But yeah, that $1,000 would have come in real handy last year. What, what can people do? You know, our insurance here, they just sent me a renewal letter. If I would like to insure with flood cover was more than $1,800 a month. Oh, my goodness. Who can afford that as well as a mortgage, you know, and everything else? Um, yes, it's just unaffordable. So we can't afford it. Have they? Has your insurance covered you for previous floods? So it's no. always been too expensive in my opinion. So I... I'm, I haven't had it. Do you think the climate change is playing a role in these floods or how do you think about what's happening and the frequency of them in recent years? Um, I just know that our area, like especially with the development, that's changed and 100% believe that this is um, a lot to do with the runoff. And, and probably, you know... <laughs> It's not just the fact that they, hey, let's build some houses here. They're filling in floodland. They're filling in the floodplains. Peter, because of the ongoing difficulties you've faced, repeated floods and failing to get approval to build your house at a flood-safe level, have you and your husband just thought about moving? Yes, we have. I have been the one saying, like, should we just go? Should we just go? And I do really like living here. I love it. Um, it is such a great place. I would just love to be able to do the knockdown rebuild, like be able to build a bit higher to like everywhere else who who are building now can. If we could have that, I would be I, I would love to stay here. I love the area. Um, but yeah, I have thought about just going. Next, why is Australia unprepared for flooding? So, Graham, is the flooding that we're seeing at the moment in the Sydney Basin unusual? No, floods are not unusual there. In fact, it's definitely a feature of life there going back a long way. Graham Redfern is an environment reporter for Guardian Australia. McGrath's Hill, which is where Peter lives in Western Sydney, yes, flooding is a feature. And the other areas that have flooded as well, this area, houses are built on a floodplain. Um, And and that's, at this stage, that's nobody's fault. That's just uh, a reality Mm. from history. So we know floods have always happened there, but I think what surprised me about what Peter said was that her house has been flooded three times in the last 18 months and never before since she built it in the 1980s. Is the frequency surprising? 
Well, clearly it's surprising to a lot of the people like Peter that, that have had to live through it. The river heights have been at or close to an all-time high for the Hawkesbury, for example. So there is something that appears to be unique about what's happened now. But the, the, the frequency of the flooding actually relates to what's gone on over the last two years, actually. One of the main reasons why we're getting flood after flood after flood is that the ground is absolutely drenched. Right. It's soaked and it can't take up any more moisture. Plus that Warragamba Dam has been pretty full, can't take up much more water until it has to be released. So you have you have sodden ground that can't soak up any more moisture and we have these weather systems that we'll probably talk about in a little bit, these, these climate drivers that generally give us wetter, wetter weather. So there's there's a lot of things that have come together uh, to um, prime that whole area for multiple floods um, in a short space of time. Okay, well, let's talk about this specific weather system now before we move on to climate change. What can you tell us about what's happening <laughs> in the atmosphere? So we spoke to um, Ben Domencino. He's a, a meteorologist at WeatherZone, and he's been talking about this massive downpour that we've had in Sydney over the last few days. You've got a whole bunch of moisture in the tropics that heads down the country and it feeds into a, a system off the New South Wales coast. That's a low-pressure system. Sometimes we call it an extratropical cyclone. We sometimes also refer to these systems as East Coast lows. Heard about that a lot. <laughs> Yeah, that's not as important uh, as the rain that came from it. That intense rainfall from sort of Friday through to Saturday, um, it, it was being predicted, but heavy rain is notoriously difficult to, to forecast because there's a lot going on in the atmosphere. Hmm. I just want to ask you about La Nina because obviously this event is still happening while we talk, while we record. Is La Nina over or is La Nina not over? And is there anything else going on? La Nina is no longer active according to the Bureau of Meteorology as of a few weeks ago. Um, but we're in what's called, what the Bureau of Meteorology calls a La Nina watch period. And when the Bureau looks at what all the weather models think is going to happen in the months to come, more than half of them think that actually we will tip back into a La Nina system by the time the next summer comes around. All that means is that we get a higher chance of more rainfall, so potentially another wet summer to come. That would make a very, very rare um, triple dip La Nina. But there's also... If we go to the other side of the continent, over in the Indian Ocean, there's also something really important happening over there as well that's also going to influence our rainfall. Uh, it's called the Indian Ocean Dipole. Again, it's winds pushing warmer water closer to our continent. Right. This is happening in the Indian Ocean, up in the northwest. And, and climatologists say that when that system is in what's called a negative phase, that generally means there's more moisture available as rain across the, the southern part of the continent. And we are just now dipping into a negative Indian Ocean dipole uh, system, and that could be around for a few months. So short version, unfortunately, the chances of us having more wet months ahead 
well into the summer are, are fairly high. And you've already said, Graham, that the ground is so wet from years of rain that it can't absorb any more water. So does that mean that floods could potentially happen again and be potentially even worse? I don't want to be the person that predicts that, um, but certainly the, the risk of that ha- of that happening is there. Mm. Where the where the rain comes down, that that capacity for the soil to soak it up. Um, a really good analogy that a scientist said to me a couple of months ago was: if you've ever put a sponge on your kitchen bench or on your draining board at home, the sponge will sort of sit there and soak up a whole bunch of water. But at some point, it, it becomes saturated, and the water just runs right over the top, or right right through, and comes out the other end. It can't it can't hold it anymore. So if we think of the east coast of Australia and these places from southeast Queensland all the way down that have had high rainfall, and we think that that's the sponge, the sponge is full, and we should be thinking about what we might do if we get more downpours like this. So that's the weather system, but what is the role of global heating in this? tragedy? So very, very complex. Uh, But let's try and step this through. First, maybe we should start with a conversation that my colleague Adam Morton had with uh, Dr. Andrew King. He's a climate scientist at the University of Melbourne. So he talks about the backdrop to this flooding being these two La Nina events that we've had over the past two years. Now, a quick sort of La Nina 101, You get really strong uh, trade winds that blow west across the Pacific. It pushes warmer surface water closer to Asia, where we are. And generally, that gives us a lot more rain. So that has primed the soil. It's saturated the soil uh, so that when it rains, the land doesn't really soak much of it up. It just runs straight into the creeks, into the rivers, and the rivers rise, and we we get flooding. But we also know that in the background, we've made the oceans warmer, and we've made the atmosphere warmer. A warmer ocean generally will give you more energy for rainfall, and a warmer atmosphere can hold more moisture. Now, it'd be nice if it was that simple and we could just go, oh, well, okay, so um, about a degree gives you about 7% more moisture in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But as we've said uh, um, on this podcast before, there's all sorts of stuff going on in the atmosphere that means that that 7% could actually be that there's a feedback mechanism that might actually give you even more moisture into the system. So Andrew King says, yes, maybe there's a role for climate, but at the moment, that's right on the edge of what climate scientists are able to deduce by running models. But the physics of it, warmer atmosphere holds more moisture, is pretty well known. And it was actually uh, an Australian uh, scientist, Steve Sherwood, from the University of New South Wales that's shown that, you know, if you get to two degrees of global warming, then you could add between 11 and 30% more rain on the days when you have the really heavy downpours. And we're already at sort of 1.3, 1.4 degrees. So climate change is a a thing now that we should be thinking about um, as contributing to this rain event regardless of what we think about 1.5, 2 degrees or a net zero target, um, you know, we've been pumping this stuff into the atmosphere for quite a long time. And it may be that we are starting to, to reap what we've sown, so to speak. So we did hear Anthony Albanese on Wednesday. And Australia has always been subject of floods, 
of bushfires, uh, but we know that the science told us that uh, if, uh, if, if we continued uh, to not take action globally on climate change, uh, then these events, extreme weather events, would be more often and more intense. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, is, is that play out. Specifically linking climate change to the floods happening at the moment, which is something the coalition didn't do. Was that a welcome change, Graham? That's interesting. Much more willing to to link what's happening now to climate change than maybe previous prime ministers have been. The phrase that we used to hear a lot from politicians is, and even climate scientists was, you can't link any single event to to climate change. Um, But we realised quite a long time ago that we were asking the wrong question if we were saying, was this flood stroke, bushfire stroke, heat wave um, uh, caused by climate change? Um, The question is, did climate change make this worse? Um, and, And I think increasingly politicians... From, pro- from the Prime Minister down are willing to accept that, yes, maybe they are. So given all that, all, all that we know, do you think Labor's commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 43% by 2030 is sufficient? Whatever Labor does now um, won't change what globally we've put into the atmosphere since the turn of the last century. But clearly we would not want to subject people living in those places like Western Sydney to um, a future where they pass their house on to their kids and their grandkids um, and this problem is just getting worse and worse. So we have to start somewhere is the argument and where we start is with an ambitious target. 43% cut to greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 is not an ambitious target. It doesn't compare all that well to some of our other international partners, but it is better than the Morrison government's target. What does that mean for flooding? Well, climate policy is about way more than just uh, a target. Climate policy also needs to look at um, mitigation of emissions, you know, burning less fossil fuels, putting less CO2 into the atmosphere, but also adaptation. What are the things we can do to adapt to the changes that we know are coming, but that we can do very little about? And so I think that now what we also need to hear a lot more from some of the political leaders is how can we adapt to conditions like this? How can we adapt to more flooding? What can we do? How can we make communities more resilient? Mm. Um, How can we help lower the suffering for people like Peter and others living in these areas, what are the things we can do? Um, so we, we need, unfortunately, I think that the conversations around climate policy in Australia tend to be a bit binary, um, but they need to get a lot more sophisticated and nuanced and considered really quickly. And part of that, I think, needs to be conversations about how communities like Peter's at McGrath's Hill or how places smashed by bushfires uh, or um, agricultural sectors hit by droughts. Um, You know, how do we help these communities and these people to adapt to what's coming? Yeah, that's a really good point. And one of the things that has come up a a few times in the the conversation and and that Peter mentioned was the Warragamba Dam. Now, she felt that 
you know, it was at 97% before the flood, that that was too high, that it should have been released earlier. What are the experts saying about that? Yeah, well, we we did ask one. Um, Stuart Kahn is a professor at the University of New South Wales, and he's a he's a sort of a water system specialist. He said that, in in particular, Warragamba probably should be kept at a lower capacity generally, have less water in it most of the time, mm-hmm. so that when you've got flooding, you've got like a buffer, you, you can absor- absorb some of that some of that rainfall, and. He said that rather than allow it to get almost full, 97% as it was just before the flood, it might make more sense to to get it and keep it more at something like 60%. Graham, given all we know and what we've just outlined in this episode about the climate crisis and its potential to make these extreme weather events more frequent and more intense, are governments doing enough to prepare the community for the next natural disaster? Remember, we're in a housing shortage, mm. right? And so if, if you're going to make homes available for people and you're going to make those homes available in places that are open to flooding, um, where the flood risk is becoming unacceptable, then the question needs to be asked is, what are we letting those people in for? I've definitely heard many stories over recent days uh, of people talking about the, the resilience and strength of people in these communities but also the questions are now being asked, you know, how many times can you clear up? How many times can we keep sustaining these losses for businesses and for homes? You know, we're, we're talking from a newsroom um, about the effects on people's lives. But I suppose unless you've had to go through the, the mud-soaked family pictures and albums, you know, your memories going underwater, it's it's hard to really grapple with the mental toll that that will have on people, as well as the financial toll that that will have on the, on people. At, at some point, for some families and some people living out there, there will, there will be a straw that will break the camel's back and they will decide, I can't afford the insurance anymore, I can't afford to live here anymore, and I can't afford the, the, the pain, the emotional pain of being here and going through this over and over again. And I, and I hope... Um, I hope that we can have some sensible conversations that will that will help people like that. That was Graeme Redfern, an environment reporter for Guardian Australia. You can read more of Graeme's reporting on theguardian.com. And we're linking to his latest piece explaining the unusually extreme rain and weather that caused Sydney's fourth major flood in two years on the full story page. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and Alison Chan. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Simo. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Laura Murphy-Oates and me, Gabrielle Jackson. OK, we'll see you next time. <laughs>